Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. Okay, so as an annual tradition, uh, every year I read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting, before Charles Dickens writes A Christmas Carol, Christmas is kind of losing its momentum, especially as a consumer holiday. It hasn't really begun in, in a fashion that we know it. Um, basically, like a long story short, the Puritans come along and they kind of outlaw Christmas. And in fact, a lot of uh, puritanical touches get added. And the, the the idea is, particularly in London, when Dickens comes along, he starts making it more and more of a thing in his stories. And those pick up more and more as he goes along. A Christmas Carol isn't the only uh, story he wrote about Christmas. Today, we're going to read a book called The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. So A Christmas Carol comes out in 1843. And sells out like 6,000 copies uh, between like December 19th and December 24th. Like they, it, and it, it ends up being not as much of a windfall for uh, Dickens as he thought it would be because he was real particular about the print. But that's it's a whole other, we, we'll do a whole episode about that sometime. The important thing to note is that the story that we're going to be hearing from today uh, was published in December 1836, as I mentioned before, meaning it's a good five, eight years older than A Christmas Carol, and you can really see uh, kind of the bones of A Christmas Carol to it pretty well. Uh, I think one of the more interesting things is that clearly Dickens became more class conscious as he went along. He himself had a really troubled life. Uh, his dad went to debtor's prison which was a real thing in the 1800s. Basically, if you owed enough money, they would put you in a work prison. Uh, and you could even bring your family with you, but you couldn't bring everyone. So Charles was left behind. And he had a big family. He had like eight brothers and sisters. He gets left behind. He has to start working at age 12. Eventually, his family, pretty quickly, I guess, so like but by the time he's 13, get out uh, of prison. They manage to secure... Somebody dies and they get an inheritance. And once he's out of prison... Uh, Charles's mom makes him go back to work, and so he becomes a lifelong misogynist. <laughs> he doesn't actually, but he is particularly mean to his wife at the end of their life. But that's, like I said, we'll do a whole episode on him. At the time, the Puritans had done a good job of saying, if you want to celebrate Christmas, you do it by going to church and praying. You don't do anything fancy. You don't do anything fun. Uh, maybe you get drunk. That's pretty popular with the Puritans. Uh, and then you feel bad about having fun, also popular with them. One of the things that I really appreciate that Dickens did was, uh, as you can see kind of from this version that we'll listen to, it is very much more focused on um, a guy who is just grumpy. Uh, Christmas Carol, meanwhile, classic story, focuses on a very rich man who has essentially traded his soul for profit. The thing is, I really kind of like Christmas. It's it's a little bit complicated. We didn't have good ones as kids, but they had a special place. 
Um, and I think what Dickens adds to Christmas is an interesting thing because it makes Christmas about something more than religion. It's about looking at the people around you and realizing this is my fellow man and I owe them something. And, and there, there's a lot of Native American tribes that have this concept that you don't have rights, you have obligations. You don't have a right to free speech, you have an obligation to use your speech wisely. Understand the distinction pretty, pretty easily as you go along, right? The thing for me is I do appreciate the notion of Christmas and, and the overall Christian ethos, the, the, the Christian myth of the baby Jesus is kind of cool to me because at its core, it's God saying, hey, I have been a huge dick in the past. And I don't want you guys to suffer for it. So I'm going to send my kid to show you really what I was going for. And I want you guys to follow him. And after that will come peace on earth and goodwill towards man and all that stuff. I think that's kind of not a bad take, even though I do think it is more mythical. The thing I appreciate that Dickens does is he transforms it into a holiday that is about being a better person by learning from your past, which kind of recyclables whole brand. I also appreciate that because it gives Christmas a new context. I don't know much about Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, but Hanukkah seems to be a holiday that is about faith and resilience and resistance, and Kwanzaa seems to be a thing that is about community and regrowth and building a better future. And I think this change to Christmas, Dickens's thing for Christmas, is that it changes it from being this day that you think of in terms of kind of God doing stuff, and you see it instead as, I want to give gifts to my loved ones. I want to celebrate them, and I want to have a good time with them, which makes it about family and gift-giving and celebration. Uh, and, and I like that. Now, now that I've talked enough... Let's jump into our story. The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton by Charles Dickens In an old abbey town, down in this part of the country a long, long while ago, so long that the story must be a true one because our great-grandfathers implicitly believed it, there officiated a sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard one Gabriel Grubb. It by no means follows that because a man is a sexton and constantly surrounded by emblems of mortality, therefore he should be a morose and melancholy man. Your undertakers are the merriest fellows in the world, and I once had the honor of being on intimate terms with a mute, who in private life and off-duty was as comical and jocose a little fellow as ever chirped out a devil-may-care song without a hitch in his memory or drained off a good stiff glass of grog without stopping for breath. But notwithstanding these precedents to the contrary, Gabriel Grubb was an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surly fellow, a morose and lonely man who consorted with nobody but himself and an old wicker bottle which fitted into his large, deep waistcoat pocket, and who eyed each merry face as it passed him by with such a deep scowl of malice and ill-humor it was difficult to meet without feeling something worse for it. A little before twilight one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself towards the old churchyard. 
for he had got a grave to finish by next morning, and feeling very low, he thought it might raise his spirit perhaps if he went on with his work at once. As he wended his way up the ancient street, he saw the cheerful light of blazing fires gleam through the old casements, and heard the loud laugh and cheerful shouts of those who assembled around them. He marked the bustling preparations for next day's good cheer, and smelt the numerous savory odors consequent thereupon, as they steamed up from the kitchen windows in clouds. All this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb, and as groups of children bounded out of the houses, tripped across the road, and were met before they could knock at the opposite door by a half-dozen curly-haired little rascals who crowded round as they flocked up the stairs to spend the evening in their Christmas games. Gabriel smiled grimly and clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grasp as he thought of measles, scarlet fever, thrush, whooping cough, and a good many other sources of consolation beside. In this happy frame of mind, Gabriel strode along, returning a short, sullen growl to the good-humored greetings of such of his neighbors as now and then passed him, until he turned into the dark lane which led into the courtyard. Now, Gabriel had been looking forward to reaching the dark lane because it was, generally speaking, a nice, gloomy, mournful place in which the townspeople did not much care to go, except in broad daylight and when the sun was shining. Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring out some jolly song about a merry Christmas in this very sanctuary, which had been called Coffin Lane ever since the days of the old abbey and the time of the shaven head monks. As Gabriel walked on and the voice grew nearer, he found it proceeded from a small boy who was hurrying along to join one of the little parties in the old street and who, partly to keep himself company and partly to prepare himself for the occasion, was shouting out the song at the highest pitch of his lungs. So Gabriel waited till the boy came up and then dodged him into a corner and wrapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times just to teach him to modulate his voice. As the boy hurried away, his hand to his head singing quite a different sort of tune, Gabriel Grubb chuckled very heartily to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, set down his lantern, and getting into the unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right good will. But the earth was hardened with the frost, and it was no very easy manner to break it up and shovel it out. And although there was a moon, it was a very young one, and shed little light upon the grave, which was in the shadow of the church. At any other time, these obstacles would have made Gabriel grow very moody and miserable, but he was so well pleased with having stopped the little boy's singing that he took little heed of the scanty process he had made, and looked down into the grave when he had finished work for the night with grim satisfaction, murmuring as he gathered up his things. Brave lords for one, brave lords for one, a few feet of cold earth when life is done, a stone at the head, a stone at the feet, a rich juicy meal for the worms to eat, bright grass overhead, and damp clay around, brave lodgings for one, these in holy ground. Ho, ho! laughed Gabriel Grubb as he sat himself on a flat tombstone, which was a favorite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle. A coffin at Christmas, a coffin box, ho, ho, ho! Ho, ho, ho! repeated a voice which sounded closer behind him. Gabriel paused in some alarm in the act of raising the wicker bottle to his lips and looked around. 
The bottom of the oldest grave about him was not more still and quiet than the churchyard in the pale moonlight. The cold hoarfrost glistened on the tombstones and sparkled like rows of gems among the stone carvings of the old church. The snow lay hard and crisp upon the ground and spread over the thickly strewn mounds of earth, so white and smooth a cover that it seemed as if corpses lay there, hidden only by their winding sheets. Not the faintest rustle broke the profane tranquillity of the solemn scene. Sound itself appeared to be frozen up. All was so cold and still. It was the echoes, said Gabriel Grubb, raising the bottle to his lips again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood, rooted to the spot with astonishment and terror, for his eyes rested on a form which made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone close to him was a strange, unearthly figure whom Gabriel felt at once was no being of this world. His long, fantastic legs, which might have reached to the ground, were cocked up and crossed after a quaint, fantastic fashion. His sinewy arms were bare and his hands rested on his knees. On his short, round body he wore a close covering, ornamented with small slashes, and a short cloak dangled at his back. The collar was cut into curious peaks, which served the goblin in lieu of a ruff or neckerchief, and his shoes curled up at the toes into long points. On his head he wore a broad-brim sugar-loaf hat, garnished with a single feather. The hat was covered with the white frost, and the goblin looked as if he had sat on the same tombstone very comfortably for two or three hundred years. He was sitting perfectly still, his tongue was put out as if in derision, and he was grinning at Gabriel Grubb with such a grin as only a goblin could call up. It was not the echoes, said the goblin. Gabriel was paralyzed and could make no reply. What do you do here on Christmas Eve? said the goblin sternly. I came to dig a grave, sir, stammered Gabriel Grubb. What man wanders among graves and churchyards on such a night as this? said the goblin. Screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard. Gabriel looked fearfully around. Nothing was to be seen. What have you got to that bottle? said the goblin. Holland, sir replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it of the smugglers, and he had thought that perhaps his questioner might be in the excise department of the goblins. Who drinks horns alone in a churchyard on a night such as this? said the goblin. exclaimed the excited voices again. The goblin leered maliciously at the terrified sexton, and then, raising his voice, exclaimed, And then is our fair and lawful prize? To this inquiry, the invisible chorus replied, in a strain that sounded like the voice of many cloisters singing to the mighty swell of the old church organ, a strain that seemed to borne to the sexton's ears upon a gentle wind and die away as its soft breath passed onward. But the burden of the reply was still the same. The goblin grinned, a broader grin than before, and he said, Gabriel, 
What do you say to this? The Saxton gasped for breath. What do you think of this, Gabriel? The goblin said, kicking up his feet in the air on either side the tombstone and looking at the turned-up points with such complacency as he had been contemplating the fashionable pairs of Wellingtons in Old Bond Street. It's, it's very curious, sir, replied the Saxton, half-dead with fright. Very curious and very pretty, and, and I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please. Yeah. Said the goblin. The, the grave, sir. M- making the grave, stammered the sexton. Uh, the grave, eh? Said the goblin. Who makes graves at a time when other men are merry and takes a pleasure in it? Again, the mysterious voices replied. <laughs> I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin, thrusting his tongue further into his cheek than ever, and a most astonishing tongue it was. I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. Under favor, sir, replied the horror-struck Saxton. I don't think they can, sir. They don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have, replied the goblin. We know the man with the sulky face and the grim skull that came down the street tonight throwing his evil look at the children and grasping his burying spade the tighter. We know the man that struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart because the boy could be merry and he could not. We know him. Here the goblin gave a loud, shrill laugh that the echoes returned twentyfold, and throwing his feet up in the air, stood upon his head, and rather upon the very point of his sugar loaf hat, on the narrow edge of the tombstone, from whence he threw a somerset with extraordinary agility right to the sexton's feet, at which he planted himself in the attitude in which the jailers generally sit upon the shop board. I'm, I'm afraid I must leave you, sir said the Saxton, making an effort to move. Yes, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb, don't leave us. <laughs> As the goblin laughed, the Saxton observed for one instant a brilliant illumination within the windows of the church, as if the whole building was lighted up. It disappeared, the organ pealed forth a lively air, and the whole troops of goblins, the very counterpart of the first one, poured into the churchyard and began playing at leapfrog with the tombstones, never stopping for an instant to take breath, but overing the highest among them one after the other with the most marvelous dexterity. The first goblin was a most astonishing leaper, and none of the others could come near him. Even in the extremity of his terror, the Saxton could not help observing that while his friend were content to leap over the common side gravestones. The first one took the family vaults, iron railings and all, with as much ease as if they had been so many street posts. As the game reached to an exciting pitch, the organ played quicker and quicker, and the goblins leapt faster and faster, coiling themselves up rolling heads over heels upon the ground and bounding over the tombstones like footballs. The Saxton's brain whirled with 
the rapidity of the motion he beheld, and his legs reeled beneath him as the spirits flew before his eyes. When the goblin king suddenly, darting towards him, laid his hands upon his collar and sank with him through the earth. When Gabriel Grubb had time to fetch his breath, which the rapidity of his descent had for the moment taken away, he found himself in what appeared to be a large cavern, surrounded on all sides by crowds of goblins, ugly and grim. In the center of the room, on an elevated seat, was stationed his friend of the churchyard, and close beside him stood Gabriel Grubb himself, without the power of motion. Tonight, said the king of the goblins. Very cold. A glass of something warm here. At this command, a half dozen officious goblins, with a perpetual smile upon their faces, whom Gabriel imagined to be courtiers, on that account hastily disappeared, and presently returned with a goblet of liquid fire, which they presented to the king. <laughs> said the king, whose cheeks and throat were quite transparent as he tossed down the flame. This one warms indeed. Bring a bumper of the same for Mr. Grubb. It was in vain for the unfortunate sexton to protest that he was not in the habit of taking anything warm at night, for one of the goblins held him while another poured the blazing liquid down his throat, and the whole assembly screeched with laughter as he coughed and choked and wiped away tears which glushed plentifully from his eyes after swallowing the burning draw. <laughs> said the Goblin King, fantastically poking the taper corner of his sugarloaf hat into the sexton's eyes, and thereby occasioning him the most exquisite pain. And now, show the man of misery and gloom a few of the pictures from our own great storehouse. As the goblin said this, a thick cloud which obscured the further end of the cavern rolled gradually away, and disclosed apparently at a great distance a small, scantily furnished, but neat and clean apartment. A crowd of little children were gathered round a bright fire, clinging to their mother's gown and gamboling around her chair. The mother occasionally rose and drew aside the window curtains, as if to look for some expectant object. A frugal meal was ready spread upon the table, and an elbowed chair was placed near the fire. A knock was heard at the door. The mother opened it, and the children crowded around her and clapped their hands for joy as their father entered. He was wet and weary and shook the snow from his garments as the children gathered round him and, seizing his cloak, hat, stick, and gloves with busy zeal, ran with them from the room. Then, as he sat down to his meal before the fire, the children climbed about his knee, and the mother sat by his side, and all seemed happiness and comfort. But a change came upon the view, almost imperceptibly. The scene was altered to a small bedroom, where the fairest and youngest child lay dying. The roses had fled from his cheek and the light from his eye, and even as the Saxton looked upon him with an interest he had never felt or known before, he died. His young brothers and sisters crowded round his little bed and seized his tiny hand, so cold and heavy, but they shrank back from its touched and looked with awe on his infant face, for calm and tranquil it was, and sleeping in rest and peace as the beautiful child seemed to be, they saw that he was dead, and they knew that he was an angel looking down upon and blessing them from a bright and happy heaven. Again the light cloud passed across the picture, and again the subject changed. The father and mother were old and helpless now, and the number of those about them was diminished more than half, but content and cheerfulness sat on every face and beamed in every eye as they crowded round the fireside and told and listened to old stories of earlier and bygone days. Slowly and peacefully the father sank into the grave, and soon after the sharer of all his cares and troubles followed him to a place of rest and peace. 
The rest who yet survived them knelt by their tomb, and watered the green turf which covered it with their tears, then rose and turned away sadly and mournfully, but not with bitter cries or despairing lamentations, for they knew that they should one day meet again, and once more they mixed with the busy world, and their contented cheerfulness were restored. The clouds settled upon the picture and concealed it from the sexton's view. What do you think of that? said the goblin, turning his large face towards Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel murmured out something about its being very pretty, and looked somewhat ashamed as the goblin bent his fiery eyes upon him. You, a miserable man, said the goblin in a tone of excessive contempt. You? He appeared disposed to add more, but the indignation choked his utterance, so he lifted one of his very pliable legs and flourishing it about his head a little to ensure his aim administered a good sound kick to Gabriel Grubb. Immediately after which all the goblins in waiting crowded round the wretched sexton and kicked him without mercy, according to the established inv and invariable custom of courtiers upon earth who kick whom royalty kicks and hug whom royalty hugs. Show him some more, said the king of the goblins. At these words, the cloud was dispelled again, and a rich and beautiful landscape was disclosed to view. There's just such another to this day, within a half mile of the old abbey town. The sun shone out from the clear blue sky, the water sparkled beneath his rays, and the trees looked greener and the flowers more gay beneath his cheering influence. The water rippled on with a pleasant sound. The trees rustled in the light wind that murmured through the leaves. The birds sang upon the boughs, and the lark caroled on high her welcome to the morning. Yes, it was morning, the bright balmy morning of summer. The minutest leaf, the smallest blade of grass, was instinct with life. The ant crept forth to her daily toil, and the butterfly fluttered and basked in the warm rays of the sun. Myriads of insects spread their transparent wings and reveled in their brief but happy existence. Man walked forth elated with the scene, and all was brightness and splendor. You, a miserable man, said the king of the goblins in a more contemptuous tone than before, and again the king of the goblins gave his leg a flourish, again it descended on the shoulders of the sexton, and again the attendant goblins imitated the example of their chief. Many a time the cloud went and came, and many a lesson it taught to Gabriel Grubb, who, although his shoulders smarted with pain from the frequent applications of the goblin's feet thereunto, looked on with interest which nothing could diminish. He saw that men who worked hard and earned their scanty bread with lives of labor were cheerful and happy, and that to the most ignorant the sweet face of nature was a never-failing source of cheerfulness and joy. He saw those who had been delicately nurtured and tenderly brought up cheerful under privations and superior to suffering that would have crushed many of a rougher grain because they bore within their own bosoms the material of happiness, contentment, and peace. He saw that women, the tenderest and most fragile of all God's creatures, were the oftenest superior to sorrow, adversity, and distress, and he saw that it was because they bore in their own hearts an inexhaustible wellspring of affection and devotedness. Above all, he saw that men like himself, who snarled at the mirth and cheerfulness of others, were the foulest weeds on the fair surface of the earth, and setting all the good of the world against the evil, he came to the conclusion that it was a very decent and respectable sort of world after all. No sooner had he formed it than the cloud which closed over the last picture seemed to settle on his senses and lull him to repose. One by one the goblins faded from his sight, and as the last one disappeared he sunk to sleep. 
The day had broken when Gabriel Grubb awoke and found himself lying at full length on the flat gravestone in the churchyard, with the wicker bottle lying empty by his side and his coat, spade, and lantern well whitened by the last night's frost scattered on the ground. The stone on which he had first seen the goblin seated stood bolt right before him, and the grave at which he had worked the night before was not far off. At first he began to doubt the reality of his adventures, but the acute pain in his shoulders when he attempted to rise assured him that the kicking of the goblins was certainly not ideal. He was staggered again by observing no trace of footsteps in the snow on which the goblins had played at leapfrog with the gravestones, but he speedily accounted for this circumstance when he remembered that, being spirits, they would leave no visible impression behind them. So Gabriel Grubb got on his feet as well he could for the pain in his back, and brushing the frost off his coat, put his on and turned his face towards the town. But he was an altered man, and he could not bear the thought of returning to a place where his repentance would be scoffed at and his reformation disbelieved. He hesitated for a few moments and then turned away to wander where he might and seek his bread elsewhere. The lantern, the spade, the wicker bottle were found that day in the churchyard. There was a great many speculations about the sexton's fate at first, but it was speedily determined that he had not been carried away by the goblins, and there were not wanting some very credible witnesses who had distinctly seen him whisked through the air on the back of a chestnut horse, blind of one eye, with the hindquarters of a lion and the tail of a bear. At length all of this was devoutly believed, and the new sexton used to exhibit to the curious for a trifling emolument a good-sized piece of the church weathercock, which had been accidentally kicked off by the aforesaid horse in his aerial flight, and picked up by himself in the churchyard a year or two afterwards. Unfortunately, these stories were somewhat disturbed by the unlooked-for reappearance of Gabriel Grubb himself. Some ten years afterwards, a ragged, contented, rheumatic old man. He told his story to the clergyman, and also to the mayor, and in course of time it began to be received as a matter of history, in which form it has continued down to this very day. The believers of the weathercock tale, having misplaced their confidence once, were not easily prevailed upon to part with it again, so they looked as wise as they could, shrugged their shoulders, touched their foreheads, and murmured something about Gabriel Grubbs having drunk all the Hollands and then fallen asleep on the flat tombstone, and they affected to explain that he was supposed to have witnessed in the Goblin Cavern by saying he had seen the world and grown wiser. But this opinion, which was by no means a popular one at any time, gradually died off, and be the matter it may, as Gabriel Grubb was afflicted with rheumatism to the end of his days, the story has at least one moral, if it teaches no better one. And that is, if a man turns sulky and drinks by himself at Christmas time, he may make up his mind to not be a bit the better for it. Let the spirits be ever so good, or let them be even so many degrees beyond proof as those which Gabriel Grubb saw in the Goblin's Cavern. Uh, I read this from... Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol and Other Christmas Writings from Penguin Classics Books. It has an introduction and notes by Michael Slater. The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sextant. Originally published in the 10th monthly number of Pickwick Papers, December 1836, where it is related by Old Wardle to his family and guests seated round the fire. In the first edition of the novel, therefore, the whole story is enclosed in double quotation marks and dialogue within the story in single ones. As the story stands alone in this edition, however, I have used only double quotation marks for the dialogue consistently with procedure in all of the other items. To note, first, 
Gall and Wormwood comes from Limitations 319. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the Wormwood and Gall. Second, Holland's is actually Dutch Gin. Third, Wellington's and Bond Street. Wellington's were a kind of riding boot named after the Duke of Wellington. Bond Street is a fashionable shopping street in London's West End. Thank you for picking up Recyclables today. Donations to the Acast streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.